Father, once again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to congregate together in public without fear of mobs, without fear of authorities coming in to break up the meeting, haul us away, persecute us in ways. Father, our country's changing. We can see things that point towards darker days when it comes to persecution and oppression. It may not turn out that way in the long run, or it may yet turn out that way in the long run. Help us, Father, to prepare for whatever comes, that we will be good stewards of the freedom you've provided for us so far, and that we will be faithful uh, if those freedoms get curtailed, if the uh, repercussions for sharing our faith become harsh, become burdensome, uh, become things that will be used to used against us to take things from us, be it freedoms or property or opportunities or reputation, Father. Help us to be good stewards of whatever situation that you give to us, that we'll be brave, that we will take examples of the believers from Scripture who have uh, done the right thing in the face of overwhelming opposition. Father, we, we don't experience persecution in a real sense compared to many of the believers of the Bible and many believers around the world, but uh, whatever you call us to do, Father, uh, when the Lord uh, has us stand before him, the time of judgment, may we be among those who receive a well-done, good, and faithful servant. In his name, amen. All right, we're going to continue where we left off last, uh, last session. Uh, just to remind everybody, we were, um, we're going through the book of Daniel in the order the information was revealed to Daniel and collecting all the information that we need to understand one of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, namely the identity of the beast in Revelation 17. That's a very important prophecy when it comes to lining out what is going to happen in the possible near future, the, what we expect to be the near future, whether that's days, months, or even years. Uh, we don't know, but uh, there's really nothing else to, uh, to stop uh, the prophecy from unfolding. The rapture could take place before this uh, hour is over. It could take place today, this week, whatever, and then, uh, then history will begin to uh, unfold as prophesied in Scripture. So now we've gotten quite a lot of information in Daniel already. I'm not going to review what we have so far, but we will recap at the end because we are in our last section of Daniel where uh, there will be uh, the type of information I told you about that's needed to understand Revelation 17. So in Daniel 10, uh, we'll just start by reading it. This last section of Daniel, 10 to 12, is one, is one whole section unto itself. Those last three chapters really belong together as, as a final prophecy um, in the book. So, uh, but before I start reading, uh, just rem uh, remember uh, Daniel 9 was uh, just uh, on, at 539 B.C., a very important year where the, where the, uh, the, Babylon the Babylonian uh, Empire is finally overthrown. The Medo-Persians took over. And if you remember from the, the prophecy of the statue of five sections, that meant the, section, the top section, the head of gold, which represented Babylon, that time had passed. It moved on to the Medo-Persian section, the silver, the, the, the chest and arms of silver, that part of history. As you go from head to toe, you're going forward through history as God lined it out to Daniel as an encouragement uh, to the Jews and to us that he has history under control. 
There is nothing, there is nothing going off the rails as much as it may seem like it from day to day. Things are all proceeding according to his plan. It's just a matter of us realizing that, taking comfort in it, and being faithful stewards during that time. Now, Daniel 10 takes place a few years, a few years later, uh, two or three years later. Uh, as we saw in chapter 9, Daniel was praying for the restoration of the Jews going back to the land. The prophecy of Jeremiah that he had come to know about uh, said 70 years that Babylon was going to dominate. Obviously, with the smashing of Babylon, the, the, the capital city, by the Medo-Persians, that time's over. So it's time to go back. He didn't demand of God that God uh, make good on his promise. He knew God would. He appealed to God's righteousness. He appealed to God's compassion. And he appealed to God's name because God had made this promise. He didn't, he didn't stand on his own merits. No, he even, he even confessed that it's, it's, it's not on him. He wasn't standing on his own merits. He, the, the Jews didn't, uh, you know, couldn't stand up and say, we've been righteous because they hadn't. They were out of the land because of their violations of the covenant, the agreement that they made with God uh, as a nation so many years before under Moses. But now it's three years later. And uh, there's one more, one more prophecy in this book, and we'll start reading. So Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. Now before I go on, skip over this a lot. Daniel was upset. The thing is, why? I mean, because I stopped and asked, why would he be upset? I mean, just, just in the last chapter, a couple of years before, the Jews are going back. The Hebrews are returning to their land. They're going to start building things. You know, they got the, the prophecy of history unfolding. What was bothering him? If you look through Scripture and put all the dates together, what was going on? Uh, uh, there was something else going on that you can see in Ezra 4, 5. And you can read that, you can read that yourself later. But it is uh, an account of how the enemies of the Jews were trying to throw sticks in the spokes, if you will, of the efforts uh, you know, in Jerusalem. So, and don't forget, uh, Daniel wasn't back in the land with, with his fellow Jews. He was an administ administrator in Persia. So he was in the midst of seeing all this stuff. They were bringing, you know what, let's go there. I haven't, I, you know, let, let's go to Ezra 4, 5. Because it really is neat to see these things come together. As I said last hour, um, you know, the, these books that take place, uh, you know, after, uh, after the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah being among those, these aren't just like, little stories that stand by themselves. And, they, and even if they stood by themselves, there's a lot of encouragement in there and the application of those situations. But they are all, they all weave together. Uh, this is the, the unfolding of the prophecies to Daniel and the promises that God will restore Israel and there will be an ultimate kingdom at the end of time. So Ezra 4.5. Now I'm going to start at 4.1. 
Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezrahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Like, that wasn't real. But Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build, the Lord God, build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, I forget how far down the line that is, but boy, doesn't that sound like a headline nowadays? You know, something's going on. Someone's trying to do some good work according to the law, according to the king, and then there's someone hiring counselors. Someone's getting all lawyered up to, to mess this up. It's not new. We see it all the time. It's sickening. Like, oh, you know, some, thing, some good thing is attempted in the country, and then, oh, an injunction comes from somewhere. Somebody's suing somebody. It's going to get held up in court. Well, you know what? There's coming a day where that's going to end. When Jesus Christ comes back, there will be perfect rain on earth. So hold your breath until then. Or, no, don't hold your breath until then. You'll die. Um, or maybe not. I mean, it could have, you know, hold your breath at your own, at your own risk. Uh, but if he's off more than a few minutes, uh, we'll pick you up off the floor if you're doing that. Uh, so take, even though that's a, a pain, it, take encouragement the fact that it's nothing new. The, the tactics of the enemy is nothing new. So here are these people, like, hey, we want to help out, which they were going to get in close and mess things up in some way. And since they were stopped from doing that, it's like, okay, let's jam things up. So there's, there's Daniel. He's seeing all this. And I would, I would suspect that that is the reason why he's upset and started this prayer. So... Um, anybody who wants to see the integration of all those things, again, shameless plug for the timeline. If you want the document, uh, see me and I'll, and I'll get it to you. It's in Word format. I forget how many pages long, but it, it puts all those things together from Jeremiah, what we saw earlier, uh, to the triumphal entry of Christ, which we also, which we also looked at. So anyway, Daniel getting the, uh, this image. So uh, picking up at verse 6, chapter 10. His body was also like beryl, and his face had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sounds of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength." But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand that the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this to me, I stood up trembling." Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. 
And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I had turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who, was resemble, who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, for so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Now we are in... Uh, this latter part of Daniel, uh, th this last section, uh, has tremendous prophecies that would be an encouragement to Jews in exile waiting the coming of Messiah. I mean, we can gain encouragement from it by seeing it as fulfilled prophecy, as I said a couple of times before. The prophecies that come up, which are mainly in chapter 11, are so accurate that uh, the scoffers have said, oh, this is just written after the fact. Now, we're not going to go through all of 11 because most of the information here does not pertain to what we're attempting to do, and that is explain Revelation 17. But there are a couple of things in here that will be, very, that'll be helpful to kind of round things out a little bit and to reinforce what we've already picked up from the previous, from the previous chapters. So let's uh, just go through these summary notes here um, as well. Chapter, chapter 10. Brief summary of the prophecy that uh, is coming up in 11 and 12. Daniel had been mourning and fasting for three weeks. And again, this is perhaps it was connected to the, uh, what was going on uh, in an attempt to interfere with the restoration of the temple. At that point, he received a prophecy delivered by an angel regarding kings that follow Cyrus and their interactions with each other, Israel and the temple. And that's what 11 is about. It's, it says what kings are going to follow Cyrus and then Greece, and then it talks about what happens when uh, the Greek Empire under Alexander breaks up into four empires and how those empires are fighting with each other, specifically two of them. The Seleucid Empire, which is named after uh, Seleucus, one of the uh, successors to Alexander, and the Ptolemaic Empire, named after General Ptolemy. So Ptolemy was down in Egypt, Seleucus was up in the Syrian region and beyond, and there was all sorts of territory exchanges because these four, you know, these four empires, although they're all Greek, the Hellenistic world, as is typically known in history, is like they did not get along. Uh, scripture represents them as one thing in Daniel 8, the goat with four horns. They're one people. They were all Greek, but they did not get along. You know, they, they fought just like any other empires. Two would gang up on one, or three would gang up on one, or two and two, or one on one, and, and then there was like forced marriages and invasions and, and, and counter-invasions and territory exchanges. It was a big mess, but it was all still considered, you know, in Scripture, one, one people. Uh, and you can imagine being, you know, in this situation. Now, Daniel can receive a lot of encouragement in his situation, like, wow, I just got all these prophecies about the future and how God's promising things, but, you know, God's also making provision for the Jews who are going to endure all these things through the centuries, because this is a long period of time. This wasn't just waiting a day or two. 
uh, there were centuries to go on until the arrival of Christ. And then still beyond that, as we saw in Daniel chapter 9, you know, it's like, uh, remember, Jerusalem's destroyed from last, from, you know, from last hour. You know, Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Then there's a promise that there's going to be a restoration of it. But then there's also a promise that there's going to be more destruction. So there is a lot to come before everything gets settled out and, the, and Christ's endless kingdom finally, uh, you know, finally takes hold. So, so what, what would you do? You know, what would you do as a believer? Let's say when the, the Hellenistic Empire uh, first they were under the Ptolemies, the Southern Kingdom. You know, you could see, uh, and I haven't worked out like what it would be like in all the details, but you know, in like this year, we'll see a couple of them. It's like, you know, hey, ten years ago this thing happened, and my dad or my grandpa told me that it was predicted, and now we get this other prediction that something else is going to happen soon. So as these folks could see or hear about from uh, from their parents or whatever that these prophecies were being fulfilled it's like almost like down payments like it's coming it's coming it's coming and we'll see a couple of them that have to that do have to do with what we're what we're up to here and all right so we had the summary uh second bullet uh we just covered third bullet the prophecy has parts that have been fulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled some of those we'll use and the details that cover yet future events begin in Daniel 11:35, and we'll see why that works. So, okay. Now, but we already got information from chapter 10 that's going to help us. No, you can't see clearly now, but Daniel 10 in 13 and 20, there was discussion. These angels that were talking to uh, Daniel, they talked about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Now, no human can stop an angel. So, it's the, the only reasonable conclusion is that these princes were angels and this is just a depiction of these fallen angels the prince of Persia and said behold the prince of Greece is there he is he is about to come and there he is um, so there are associations with angels just out of out of the blue now there was nothing to speak to this before but out of the blue we get this information that there are some kind of associations of fallen angels to these empires that's like and this is just a little fact we're going to tuck away and use way way later in the series when we get to Revelation. So just hold on to that, uh, hold on to that observation. Now, let's see, key points. Okay, key points uh, needed for Revelation 17. Some of the historically filled, uh, fulfilled parts of the prophecy in Daniel 11 involve Rome getting the best of the Greek Seleucid Empire. Well, let's take a look at one of them. Okay, uh, this is an outline of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, if you could, if you could see here, there's Italy, the boot of Italy, and there is Greece, and this is modern-day Turkey, uh, and a lot of islands here. That's going to matter. That's going to matter for this uh, this prophecy. Now, as I said, Daniel 11 is about what happens with the Persian kings and the Greek kings, and it goes on and on in a fashion like when it gets to the Greek section, which is the biggest one. Uh, the Seleucids that are up here, it typically refers to them as king of the north. And the Ptolemies down here, king of the south. So the king of the north is going to do this, and the south is going to do that, and then the daughter of the south is going to do this, da, da 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 on and on. Now, and it refers to the king of the south using that term by any successor. So, like, if a king dies and then his successor shows up, he starts calling him the king of the south. So that's just how it's used. And why north and south? Because Israel is here. So the Seleucids, relative to Israel, are basically centered in the north, 
and relative to Israel, the south is to the south. I mean, the, or the Egyptians to the south. So king of the north, king of the south, back and forth. That's just how it goes through the entire chapter. It just keeps going. And it took a while to uh, get some of this out of history by looking at, uh, looking at some references. So one of the prophecies that matter about Rome getting uh, the best of the Greeks uh, was Daniel 11:18, which was fulfilled in 192 to 188 BC. Now don't forget, Daniel, he was brought to, he was brought to Babylon 605. That was a young man. So this prophecy continues to extend through time. And so let's just read Daniel 11:18. And remember that we're in the midst of back and forth, this prophecy goes, King of the North's doing this, King of the South's doing that. So, and this is about the king of the north. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against, against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. Now, that is not a very detailed prophecy. And we can relate to that as Christians now when we read Revelation, that there's some prophecies like this, this burning mountain's going to crash. Now, there's some inter- you know, you can imagine what, you know, burning mountain going to crash, a meteor going to hit, is it a metaphor for something else? I don't know. A lot of times prophecy isn't known, you know, the details of it until it's actually fulfilled. Unlike the one we saw in chapter 9, where it was saying, Messiah, the prince is going to come, and you could figure out exactly what day. I mean, there's some specifics. You know, when he shows up, you're going to know that's when, it, you know, that, that's when it is and how many, you know, how many years ahead of time. If someone took the time to do that, they could figure it out if you were way, way back then. But a lot of prophecies, you know, you can see when they're fulfilled, but up, up and ahead of time, you can't, really, you can't really predict it. The favorite one, of course, is somewhere in Zechariah where it was about Judas turning on the Lord. It's like, you know, weigh out my price, if not forbear. So they weighed out my price and... You know, it was 30 pieces of silver, and he cast it to the potter in the house of the Lord. It's like, there's no way you're going to figure out what that means ahead of time. But when you hear what happened, 30 pieces of silver, he threw it down in the temple. They put it in the, tre- you know, they couldn't put it in the treasury, so they bought the potter's field. It's like, can you imagine being in the upper room hearing about that? It's like, guess what I heard? And like, you know, now read this in Zechariah. I think it was in Zechariah. Read that. And like, whoa, you know. So here we have this prophecy that doesn't have a lot of detail in it. So how was, what happened in history, though? Uh, and I'll just read this excerpt about, uh, is, it was called the Roman-Seleucid War because the Seleucids were fighting Rome. Uh, in this 192 to 188 BC, following several years of establishing spheres of influence in Greece, Asia Minor, and the Aegean Sea, the Aegean is like that little sea with all the islands in it right there. Uh, lost my own place, let's see. Rome and the Seleucid Empire went to war Okay, and we got, there's the area that's in conflict here. The Seleucids are over here. And boy, that's blue. That is really blue at home. And uh, that is really red at home. So there we got Rome up there, Seleucids over there. And, in the, and in, this, in the middle, there was all these little states and principalities and everything. And one was allied with the other and, uh, and all that. So they went to war. When Antiochus III, he's a Seleucid, crossed the Hellespont, that's a little, that little, uh, spot. Let me see it back up. That little spot up there, the Hellespont. That's just this narrow area. That if you're going to go from Asia to Greece, that's the place to go, unless you want to take a boat. So he went over into Greece, and in Greece at that time was one of the other remaining four empires that was left over after Alexander. Antiochus III was trying to establish himself as the new Alexander the Great, and he almost succeeded. He had a lot of territory because the Seleucids they had a lot going over towards 
into Asia. So he's, he, he, was, he was pretty successful. Now, Rome responded by sending its own army to defend Greece, forcing the Seleucids to retreat back to Asia Minor. So the Romans went in, and then basically they kind of pushed them all the way back and got them out of there. So uh, after, after a crushing defeat at Thermopylae, that's a, a, town in, a town in Greece, the Roman general Scipio Asiaticus pursued Antiochus's forces, defeating them in the Aegean and Asia Minor. At the end of the war, under the Treaty of Apamea, Antiochus had to pay a large indemnity and give up territory west of the Taurus Mountains, which is over there. So he's basically, he was basically kicked out of Turkey. He, 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 bet, he, bet, he, bet, he bet Turkey, basically, or he lost Turkey, betting that he could take Greece. So, bit off more than he could chew. Rome was ascending. At the end of the war, let's see, um, leaving him only a relatively small portion of Asia Minor. The Seleucids also had to surrender all of their war elephants and limit themselves to 12 warships unless attacked. So it wasn't just about getting beat back. They also were humbled. They had to pay tribute. They had to have their major weapons take away. I mean, uh, a war elephant, that's a big deal. That's like, you know, if it was like World War I, taking down your battleships, or now it would be maybe like, you know, taking your aircraft carriers down or agreeing not to have any nuclear missiles or whatever. They were... They were beaten and they were forced to comply. And so if we reread Daniel 18 with these points inserted, then he, Antiochus III, will turn his face towards the coastlands. Now what's that? The Hebrew word transliterated IY, E, Strong's 339, is typically translated coastland or island, and the theater of war involved a great deal of coastal and island territory. So, and he'd capture many, but a commander, this Roman guy, Scipio Asiaticus, will put a stop to his scorn against him, and, and uh, he will repay him for his scorn. What was his scorn? Um, Antiochus, prior to this battle, Antiochus had treated a Roman ambassador scornfully, uh, telling him that Asia Minor was beyond the concern of Rome and that he was not subject to them. So Rome said, hey, and he's like, buzz off. So then, and that's what happened. So this this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, why does this matter to us? Remember, we're trying to establish what the legs of iron were in Daniel, in, in Dan, from Daniel 2. And since this uh, statue is one empire succeeding another, you can say, well, who's going to succeed Greece? If you were a prophecy watcher during this day, it'd be, and, and you know they're reading your papers, <laughs> Rome kicked the Seleucids out. You know what? I think I got an idea. I think Rome is the, uh, the legs of iron. So, oh, I agree with you. Yeah, that's how a lot of people might say that if they were being uh, thinking about Daniel's prophecy. So this is one more tidbit that is filling in the blanks for us before we go to Revelation. Uh, it's, a, it's, a fun, it's a fun section to read if you put it up against history. Uh, again, the timeline I told you about is all documented. If you want to then read the scripture, see what happened in history, click on a link to go uh, uh, read something uh, online about how it un how it unfolded. Um, then you know that that's there. If you want to dig into it, the resources can be provided provided to you. So again, the key points: the first bullet, uh, verse 18, encapsulates the Roman Seleucid War of 192 to 188 BC. Uh, what's not shown on, on the map, but verse 20a reflects the taking of the temple treasury to pay some of the debt of that war. So if you just drop down to 20a, then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. There was a successor to Antiochus III who said, 
I can't pay this stuff. I can't pay. I can't keep paying Rome like this. We're going bankrupt. But then it's like, well, there's a lot of gold in that temple. It's like, oh, really? And there was a there was a guy who was trying to you know who advised him to say, yeah, if you go hit hit up the temple for some gold, you don't have to take any out of the normal. You know, it's like getting an in. It's like you know, you know, discovering a, a like an unused bond in your bank, you know, in your in your firebox or your your uh, safe deposit box. Oh, I forgot, you know, I forgot the the gold nugget that you know Grandpa gave me when I was little or whatever. It's like, oh, here's some untapped resources. So there was a little bit about that. So when the Jews would experience this, where they were leaning on them to try and give them some gold, it's like, calm down. This is not good, but don't worry. History is still going according to God's plan. He's not surprised by it. Just chill out. It'll be okay. Again, a lot of tough times along the way. It doesn't mean anybody doesn't get killed or hurt or whatever. But the ultimate truth that God's going to wrap up history is going to be fine. So this, but, but this is also this other little tidbit about having to pay Rome, you know, is, is again, showing us, is proving the point that Greece was being replaced by Rome. Okay, now there's one other in this long chapter about uh, how the history unfolded over the centuries was verse 30b. This one is a, a little bit different uh, uh, than the other one. It's not quite as, not quite as straightforward, but uh, very interesting, very interesting uh, point. So, okay, now this is the the king of the north at this time was Antiochus IV. Now some of you may know about him because he he eventually turned on the Jews really bad and defiled the temple. And this is about some of his exploits. I'm going to back up to um, verse verse uh, 28. Then he, this is Antiochus IV will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So on the way back from some exploit, he uh, leaned on the Jews a little bit. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time will not turn out as the way it did before. This previous verse is like, the north went against the south, he got, he got some upper hand, and now he's going back again for a little more. But it's not going to turn out the same way, and here's, here's verse 30. Um, for ships of Katim, and actually I, I have a typo there. It's not verse 30b, it's verse 30a, the first section. For ships of Katim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. And it was after this point that he, that he really started giving the Jews a hard time. Now, what is all that? Um, Let's go to the slide as to what happened. So here, here again, here's this map. We're going to get a little bit of a close-up on the next map. This is closer in on the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Daniel 11, 29 to 30. Hey, hey, I got it right there. Fulfilled 168 B.C., a couple of years later. Now, the Seleucids are here. They were, remember, they were pushed back by Rome. And Rome is still growing. You, they're... Their, uh, their empire is still off the map here. They didn't own all of this yet, so, but I had them up at the corner. Uh, so the Antiochus IV rolled down into Egypt, and he got this far. And now the Romans sent, some, sent to meet him there. Now, although Rome was not down there yet, they had a deal with Egypt. Don't forget Egypt, great breadbasket bread of the Mediterranean with the Nile, the floods, and it retreated, and they had all this wheat. Rome's a growing empire. They had these deals. There, were, there was commerce going back and forth. And if you're a growing empire, you don't want somebody to be messing with your stuff. You know? and, the, and Antiochus was a, a pretty rotten piece of work. So everything's going great with Egypt. You don't want some 
you know, uh, volatile nutcase uh, with ambitions taking over your food supply, then he's going to have you at a disadvantage or, or whatever. You may think, you know, this was kind of the premise for Gulf War One. It's like, you know, Saddam's rolling down to take oil. I'm not saying one thing or other about it, but it's like, this guy is making a grab for some resources. We got to stop him. Same thing here. This guy's making a grab for resources. We had to stop his dad, Antiochus III, from taking over Greece. Now, this guy's rolling in down here. But the real fun part about this story is the Romans did not meet him with uh, military force. There was an ambassador there. And let me get my notes out, and I'll just read, I'll read what happened. And uh, let's see. Antiochus IV takes considerable territory in 168 BC from the, the south, but as he approaches Alexandria, that's where that is in the map, he is confronted by Roman ambassador Gaius Pompilius Laenus, who says that if he does not withdraw from Egypt, he will be at war with Rome. And Antiochus agrees to withdraw. And what's happened from history, it said, it's like, you know, Antiochus shows up. Now, Antiochus knew this ambassador from a time he had been in Rome. I think he was a, a, a political hostage at one point. And so it's like, you better stop or you're going to be at war with Rome. And he's like, well, let me think about it. And you know how people do. It's like, you know, let me think about it means that's like a soft no. I'll go talk to my guys. And what reportedly happened is the ambassador from Rome took his staff and drew a, a line in the dirt around him. And he said, I will have your answer before you leave the circle. They're like, whoa. He wasn't showing up with any army behind him either, but he did have the power of Rome. Said, and he knew from his dad and all the tribute they had to pay that Rome was serious. Rome will go through you. So, he, uh, the Katim thing I'll express in a moment, I'll explain in a moment. And then so he withdrew and he was upset. And that's when the oppression of the Jews started and the Maccabean War came out of that. But now, but what I'm here to do is explain, so what is this, the ships of Katim? Now, we'll, we'll explain that in a second. Again, this is a long point to make, uh, just to fill in a little bit of details of what we're doing here. Um, I, know I, I know I put this right out here for me. There it is, Katim. Okay, right where I had it. The word Katim, which is Strong's word 3794, is first seen in the Bible in Genesis 10.4, one of the grandsons of Japheth. There is some difference of opinion about the meaning of Katim, whether it refers to Cyprus, the island Cyprus there, or includes areas or powers west of it, or perhaps the meaning can change with context. If Katim includes Rome in a wide definition, or if the text is saying that ships came from the direction of Katim, Cyprus, uh, it is clear the Romans are the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, now, how would Katim refer to Rome if they weren't actually coming from there? It would be like us saying everything east of the Mississippi or, or like we, we use the word Timbuktu, an actual place, as a general meaning for some way, way far away place. So ships from Katim, uh, it could have been that they actually came from here. I forget, I was reading something about that ambassador had something to do up here first, so they might have just actually came, literally came down from here. Or, since it's written from the perspective of Israel, it's like, Katim is Katim's and Point West from there, which would include Rome. So, regardless of what the best way to interpret it is, Rome is clearly 
the is, is clearly the fulfillment of this prophecy and once again we have another sign again your prophecy watcher back in 168 bc it's like yep i'm pretty sure rome is the legs of iron you know and you could you could imagine people oh, I, don't, I don't know i think it could still be the parthians from over the, no no it's rome it's rome so the, I, I think we're I, I think we're pretty safe especially now from our vantage point in history of concluding that 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 is rome well, let me uh make sure i didn't get lost here Okay, now there are a few more points to get from this large section of Daniel that are going to further nail into place uh, some of the stuff we've already learned and a little bit more information that's going to be helpful for Revelation 17. So, uh, so before getting to the connections, just to make the point, even without the fulfillments, pardon me, in Scripture that involve Rome, it is clear from history that Rome is the successor to Greece, making it the legs of iron from Daniel 2. Now, there are, here's some other connections that we have to talk about. There are connections between the yet-to-be-fulfilled part of the prophecy and the fourth beast of Daniel 7. Then they suggest they're referring to the same circumstances. So now, let's, now let's, look at, let's look at those. First, let me back up the claim that there are yet-to-be-fulfilled portions of prophecy in Daniel 11, and this is where it's found. So we'll do, have to do a close-up. Okay. It comes from 1135 to 36a, and the two ver- we'll just put the two verses up here. And remember, this is in the midst of a, a talk about king of the north doing something, the king of the south doing something, and back and forth and all that. And, uh, and, and we're, we're now at the portion where Antiochus IV is taking it out on the Jews because of him getting pushed back from, uh, by the Romans out of Egypt. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases. And then it continues from there. But the point is, is that until the end time. And then, there's, your, there's the point that it's mentioned at, uh, that's mentioned. Now, this is not to say that there aren't people who believe in a different Christians who believe in a different layout of prophecy that they wouldn't give pushback on this. But I think this is, uh, this is reasonable to conclude, especially since we have seen elsewhere uh, in, in prophecy that when the prophecy is given, it's kind of run together, but then when it's fulfilled, there's this big gap. And the classic example is, uh, is Isaiah 61. So we'll go. We have, we have time. We'll go there. So Isaiah 61, and you've heard this before. Drew's brought this out. I love this. This is great. Um, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted, and uh, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. All right, that went down to the part of verse 2. Now, that prophecy was partially fulfilled in Luke 4. We'll just go over to Luke 4. And this is very important. It's, it's very interesting, but it's also very important to establish the principle that prophecies, when given, can be fulfilled at a piece at a time. Let's see, that was 4. Uh-oh. I had my little cross-reference written down in Isaiah, and then I left it behind. That's what happens when I talk. I forget where I leave myself off. It was, and yeah, and not only that, the glare is, and I've written pencil, 
So I make mistakes. I like to erase them. Now the glare is hitting. It's like, all right, Luke 4, 18. There we go. Uh, now we'll start at verse, we'll start at verse uh, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now remember, Drew reminds us that, you know, that the, the Jews had assigned readings. It wasn't just you just read whatever you felt like it. They had a program for reading regularly. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay, he didn't go grab it. It was given to him. So he's right place, right time. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the uh, release to the captives and the recovery of the sight of the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. They'd be like, why are they all staring at him? What's the big deal? Because he stopped before and the day of vengeance of our God that was in verse 2. And what did he, so what he, and how did he continue? To the, how did he answer them when they were looking at him? looking at him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing he didn't go on to say this the day of vengeance of our God that's his second coming now why is this such an impact or how would this this would be like somebody standing up at like a baseball game singing the star spangled banner in the land of the free and then sat down and why the heck did he finish the home of the brave like what what the heck just happened same thing here. He didn't finish the portion of the scripture. This is, a, this is an, a great indicator that this prophecy was partially fulfilled in his first advent and will be concluded in his second advent. So there is precedent. Isaiah was written before Daniel. You could say there was even, from a prophetic revelation standpoint, there was precedent to make this point here that although it flows in the text in Daniel 11, there is an enormous break in time. And we've gone from the past, our past, to now our future. Then the king will do as he pleases in uh, 11, 1130, 1136. So uh, that, that is one of the, that's, that establishes the point of the, uh, of there is a yet to be fulfilled section in there. And what are we gonna get from this yet to be fulfilled section? Oh, and let's see, oh, there we are. Okay. In Daniel 1136 and following this future section, this king of the north that referring to there is like the little horn of Daniel 7. That little horn of Daniel 7, if you, you know, turn your eyes to the big green monster over there, that's, that's the thing that had the 10 horns, and this little horn was there, and then it grew up bigger than the other ones. So, and that was, and was boasting, and you can conclude that that was a picture, an image of a person. Okay, so both this king of the north and that little horn, they're both arrogant. They both live in the end times, the context of chapter 7. They both make great conquests. They both will be destroyed. And interestingly, in both passages, there's the phrase time, times, and half a time. So there's connections. There's little bits of, little bits of pieces. It would be neat if we could have the entire, all of Daniel like printed up on the wall and then just start highlighting the connections between the various passages to see how they, see how they link up. So and the, so yeah, on the uh, on your uh, second second page there of the notes, 
on the first section, the first bullet about connections. Connections between the yet-to-be-fulfilled part of this prophecy and the fourth beast of Daniel 7 suggest they're referring to the same circumstances, properties, or features of the king of the north in Daniel 11, 36-45 are parallel to those of the ruler pictured by the little horn of Daniel 7. Both are arrogant, exist in the end times, conquer much, ultimately defeated, and the term time, times, and half a time both appear. And I have both verses, both verses there. Uh, not up here, though. Okay. There is... Whoops, I got a little ahead of myself. There is also another set of connections between this last prophecy and uh, Daniel 9, the one we took care of last hour. Connections between the yet-to-be-fulfilled part of this prophecy and the 70th week of the prophecy of Daniel 9 suggests they, were, they too are referring to the same circumstances. The abomination of desolation, it's in Daniel 12, 11, that, that chapter 11 also extends into 12, that prophecy, Connect, connects to on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And just to see them side by side, abomination of desolation, I mean, that you don't hear that term every day. You know, that, that is just a very unusual term. This may seem a little kind of odd and obscure, but we are, since we are in Daniel, we're going to get these last bits together uh, that, that match up. Now let's, now let's put all of this, put all of this together. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, one more point about that. And it, from the Daniel, from the uh, 927, this is from the 927 passage, it was referring to that prince who is to come uh, in that, in that prophecy. So now, if we go, now let's, let's look at that time, times, and half a time thing. We've heard about this before, but we can look at, let's do a close-up. Time, times, and half a time, that was in chapter 12, verse 7. And from Daniel 9, when it was talking about the 70 weeks, and then that, that final week of seven years when, uh, well, let's go back to Daniel 9, 27, since we are making these connections. Uh, I know I'm going through this a little quickly. So, but I'm going to wrap it up at the end and we'll be able to see it all together and if there's any questions, I'll take them. And that's it. Um, and he, this prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, seven years, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. One week, seven, and then you got in the middle. So what happens when you, um, well, you got time, times, and a half a time. I'll explain that in a, a second. And middle of the week, time. Uh, and the time, times, and half a time, if a time is one, and the plural, it's not one, so what if it's two? Half a time is obviously a half, so those add up to three and a half. And if you have a week, which is seven, and in the middle you divide it by two, that's three and a half. So there is, now this is based on the idea that times is two, and well, someone could say, what if it's three or what if it's four? Well, then it's not going to do anything. This is the best explanation for what's presented to us. It's a plural. Why not assume? Uh, let, let's, let's, let's plug in two and see what happens, and we do have a connection. So all these little bits that seem obscure, and maybe I'm throwing them out even kind of quickly. It's, what, three and a half, two, seven, divided by what? You're, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know. We could come to this conclusion that the king of the north in Daniel 11:36 and following, and the little horn of Daniel 7, and the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, are all the same person. They're, it's all end time stuff. It's all about the same period of time. 
in the end time stuff. They all seem together. Don't forget we had these other connections with the, the final kingdom of uh, the feet with ten toes, the beast with ten horns, and then this eleventh one comes up. There's all these similarities. You know, are they slam dunks? No. Is it coming out and spelling it out for us? No. But there is no credible alternative that takes in all the information. And that's what, and that's what analyzing, thing is like, analyzing things is about, is you take in all the information. You don't discard things that you don't like. You don't put away things that are hard to answer. You just take in everything that you can and see what makes sense of it. So let's, uh, now before I do the, before I do the summary, uh, of everything that we learned out of Daniel, is there any questions? Because I know I went through some stuff really crazy fast. So, any of that? Any questions? Okay. Or you all, or you all like shy now because you know we're live streaming and you don't want to get out into the world and and not have a chance to have the file deleted because you might say, say something. That Uncle Larry, yeah, Uncle Larry's famous now. There he is. So, okay, okay. So now. Having rushed through all this, let's look at everything that we have from Daniel. And I, I think at the beginning of the series, I said it's like, it's like going through Daniel with a shopping cart. We're collecting everything that we need for Revelation 17. So let's sum it all up. And it can't even fit on one slide anymore. I just realized this morning, I got it's like I had this one final slide. It's like, no, it, it can't even, we can't even put it all on one slide. We'll, we'll, get, it on, we'll, get, it on several, we'll get it on several slides. So. Okay. From Daniel 2, 7, 8, 5, and 10 to 12, in the order that, they were, order that they were revealed, one more time, from Daniel 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream image of the statue, which I make the point. It has five sections, not just four. The, the legs and the feet are really two separate sections, even though they're related. We found out from also from chapter 2 that the head of gold is Babylon. From chapter 7, we had the four beasts. The fourth one being that big green guy there with the really, really, really hard to see horns. The ten horns, they started with ten horns. The eleventh one came up, started little, it grew really big, and it was boastful and dominated the others and did eventually tear out uh, three, and that'll become important later on in Revelation uh, 17. Important in a way that you couldn't imagine. It also, and the teeth were iron and the claws were bronze. And these other creatures, the lion with eagle's wings, the bear, the lopsided bear with the, the ribs in his mouth, and the four-headed leopard with ring, wings. We also, looking at the information from Daniel 7 and comparing it to Daniel 2, that Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 are not talking about the same thing, with the exception of the fourth beast being the equivalent of the, of the feet. Again, that's a little hard to see. It looks great at home. There's this gray bar connecting, connecting the two of them. So... And, the, and I have this gray area just kind of connecting them just to remind us that they are contemporaries of the fourth beast, not predecessors. That will also become important later on in Revelation 17 on stuff that uh, is kind of over, overlooked a little bit. Okay. From Daniel 8, we found that there was Medo-Persia and Greece, which was represented by, again, I can't fit it on here, the, the ram with two, two horns that was one bigger than the other, and then the second, the smaller one became bigger than the first one, and then the goat with one horn representing Alexander the Great, breaking, uh, breaking and then being replaced by four horns, being represented by the four kingdoms of the Hellenistic Empire that took over after he died. 
And so that was a kind of standing together. But then Daniel 5, where that was the, the handwriting on the wall, when we find that, just like we know from history, Babylon was defeated by Medo-Persia. So those two things were able to plug into here. And then after picking up little bits of information from Daniel and then being confirmed uh, through history, we find that the legs of iron are Rome. And we have a neat term for the future empire the, represented by the fourth beast of the feet, the revived Roman Empire, because from Daniel 9 it said the people of the prince who were to come was going to destroy the temple and, and we're going to destroy the temple. We know from history the Romans destroyed the temple, but they're also referring to the prince who is to come. So there is some connection between the ancient Romans and the and this future kingdom. That has led some people to uh, conclude that Italy or somehow is wrapped up in this future kingdom. Uh, that, that's a reasonable conclusion, but as many of you know, I am not big into speculating too much. I would like to just stay with the facts that we have. We'll just state there is some connection between these Romans and this future kingdom. Uh, I know because sometimes people jump the gun and they make speculations on things. Like uh, everyone got excited in the, it was the late 50s when the European common market got started and think, well, you know, Rome is part of the Italy is part of that, so maybe this is going to be the, the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And then when it, when it got to a 10 nations, it's like, oh my goodness, we're here. And then it expanded to 15, uh, maybe 21, I forget. It, it, it's like, so suddenly, you know, we oh, stop talking about that one. So we must be very careful when, when not to become... Um, what is it, newspaper article profits, where we take everything that we see and apply it. It's good to have our filters on, biblical filters on, interpreting everything that we see, whether it's what we say and do and think and feel through the lens of Scripture, and, whether, and current events, sure. But we must be very, very careful, as we see from prophecy, because as we talked about just this hour, there are some prophecies where they're, they're specific enough that when they're fulfilled, you can say, aha, that's it. But beforehand, it really gets a little dangerous to, to predict things. Uh, the, the other, because if you predict something, it's, oh, yeah, this is it, the, the European common market, that's it. And then it goes on to be 21 nations. Well, what do you say? You know, a scoffer would say, well, Christian, you got that one right. Maybe, maybe the whole thing's a mess. So we must be careful to stay at the edge of our knowledge and not go beyond it. Can we ask questions? Sure. Because, you know, uh, but let's not, let's, not go, let's not go too far. Anyway, so there is, there is, this is the bulk of the data that we need, but there's a, I'm just going to go over a couple of minutes. Um, there is a little bit more information that we got that can't fit here. The little thing about angels, we learned that there are angels, elect and fallen, that are associated with particular nations. You know, this dark one here representing the, the, the fallen angels. We saw there was a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece. And then there was also, if you remember, a reference to My Gabriel saying, Michael, your prince. Okay, so we have, you know, Michael's associated with Israel. So there's something going on. You know, Drew's fond of talking about the angelic conflict. It's the, the backdrop. It's the white noise going on here. Out of the blue, we got some mentioning of angels. This will provide us a little bit of information That'll be, help us connect the dots in Revelation 17. So that will be important, as hard as it is to see to connect things now. And a reminder, the uses of symbols that we've seen in Daniel. A mountain can picture 
a kingdom. If, if you recall from Daniel 2, the, the stone not cut by hand smashed the statue in the feet and grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. And it was said to be you know, a, a, the ultimate kingdom that's going to replace all of them. Now, a single symbol can be used to picture a king. You know, the, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. A series of kings in a kingdom. But it was also pictured Babylon as a whole, and it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had successors. The same symbol pictured one guy and a bunch of guys and a nation at large, the kingdom itself. Or a nation of people united or divided. The, the goat, the, the, that goat from Daniel 8, it pictured Greece under Alexander, which was unified, and Greece under the four successors, which was anything but unified. And also, one symbol can picture a series of kingdoms. The whole statue in Daniel 2 pictures a series of kingdoms. All of these points are necessary to understand Revelation 17. Without taking all of them in together, there'll be shortfalls. I have seen shortfalls in, in the, the work of people who we would respect and should be respected because they didn't take them all in together. They focused on kingdoms and not people, or people and not kingdoms, when you have to take in the whole of the prophecy and see, well, some of it can apply to an individual, some of it can apply to a series of kingdoms, some of it can apply to uh, the kingdom itself. And we've seen in Scripture before, when we used the example uh, last hour of how a flood can picture an army, and we read in Isaiah how God just went from talking about rejecting something and, and using aquatic river metaphors and he used and he flowed no pun intended into using that metaphor to talk about an army and then switched to another metaphor about wings scripture especially prophetic scripture has a flow like that it's not cut and dry like uh parables we've learned the parable of the sower well this seed you know this dirt means this and this dirt means this and this dirt means this and the seed means this that's great for the parable prophetic uh scriptures as shown in daniel are a little bit more fluid and we got to pay attention to it so all right only one four minutes over unless i can go longer if someone has a question remember you're live streaming don't mess up when you ask a question all right let's close in prayer father we thank you that you've outlined history for us we thank you that uh in your power and in your omnip omniscience you can say these things with certainty you are never threatened by Satan. You are never threatened by Satan and all his armies combined. There, there is nothing to you. There's nothing that can derail your plan. Father, the only, uh, the only question that remains is how each of us will respond to your plan. Will we say yes to you for salvation? Will we say yes to you for growing up in the Lord? Will we say yes to you and trusting you for your promises and just living the Christian way of life as we should? Help us, Father, to be comforted by uh, your word that we can take these examples and not just use them as a, uh, an exercise of expanding our brains and leaving it there, but applying them to our lives that we can be confident in you, show that confidence to a world, and when we encounter people who wonder what's going to happen, we can have a good answer to them, one that comes from knowledge and one that comes from peace that you provide for us. In his name, amen.